morning. For those who are just joining us, I'm Brandis Keynes-Rohn, faculty director of the newly founded Center for Revitalizing American Institutions, as well as the Maurice R. Greenberg, senior fellow of the Hoover Institution and a professor of political science. So I'm delighted today to have these outstanding panelists here to join us. Uh, I'll introduce them in uh, the order in which they're seated. Sarah Binder is a senior fellow of governance studies at the Brookings Institutions. She's also a professor of political science at George Washington University. Sarah specializes in Congress and legislative politics, as well as Congress's relationship with the Federal Reserve. Her most recent book, co-authored with Mark Spindle, The Myth of Independence, How Congress Governs the Federal Reserve, won two awards from the American Political Science Association. Sarah was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2015 and appropriately, I would say, serves as GW's faculty senate parliamentarian. Best job in the world. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, the Honorable Barbara Comstock served as US representative for Virginia's 10th Congressional District from 2015 to 2019 and was a member of Virginia's House of Delegates from 2010 to 2014. Prior to being elected to public office, Barbara served as chief counsel of the House Government Reform and Oversight Committee, as director of public affairs at the Department of Justice, and as a congressional staffer. In 2019, Barbara joined the Baker Donaldson firm as senior advisor. The Honorable Daniel Lipinski served as a US representative for Illinois' third congressional district from 2005 to 2001 and is currently a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. Dan served on two House committees, Transportation and Infrastructure and Science, Space and Technology, and has held teaching appointments at the University of Notre Dame and the University of Tennessee. He is also currently the Pope Leo XIII Fellow on Social Thought at the University of Dallas. And although not part of Dan's official biography, I will add he is also a PhD in political science. We consider that a Thank you. <laughs> something to, to um, um, you know, uh, be lauded. Jonathan Rodden is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and professor of political science at Stanford University. Jonathan's research focuses on the comparative political economy of institutions including on political polarization in the US and abroad. Across his career, he has published numerous books and articles, and he was recently awarded the Martha Durthick Award for work that has produced a lasting contribution to the study of federalism. Currently, he has a major project on polarization and intra-party factionalization in the US Congress. So thanks to all of you for joining us. And we're gonna pick up uh, from the previous session. So for those who weren't here, we heard a lot in the previous session about how the administrative state has grown over time and the balance of power has shifted. Um, many of the panelists argued from Congress to the executive branch. So I'm curious if you agree with this assessment um, and what do you think Congress, you know, kind of what's Congress's role in contributing uh, to this trend? And if you disagree and you think that that's not true, that's fine. We're, we're Hoover's open to different opinions. Um, Sarah, let's start with, with you. Um, sure, and thank you, and thanks for including us all today. Uh, so I, I think we did, as you suggested, get a good sense from the first panel of the sort of growing recognition, at least amongst uh, political scientists, of constraints on presidents and the exercise of executive power, which certainly stands in pretty stark contrast, I think, to either sort of popular perceptions 
of the executive and the president's uh, power, but also stark contrast perhaps to um, the political science accounts, uh, Terry Moe, uh, Hoover, uh, and Will Howe about the unitary and uh, presence in unitary power. Um, I, I think despite the differences that we saw between maybe Sharice and Andy and some of the uh, discussion earlier, I do think shared across all of these accounts is this notion that uh, when we look at sort of Congress versus the president, that there's a sort of zero-sum game going on here, that a weaker Congress necessarily means a stronger, uh, a stronger executive. Uh, and I'm not so sure about that. And I think it's worth us thinking a little bit, uh, a little bit about uh, why that might be. Um, certainly, I think first we should distinguish across different policy areas. Uh, first of all, those areas in which Congress explicitly delegates uh, authority to the executive, sometimes and often retaining some sort of limited role for itself. Um, so Michael McConnell mentioned war powers, uh, of course, uh, more generally national security, uh, trade policy. Um, we want to, I think, I'm sure we'll come back to it, we want to bracket for now the notion of the major questions doctrine, right, because they're asking for, courts asking for a quote unquote, I think, clear statement of congressional intent to delegate. I'm just gonna assume for now, for this part of the discussion, that there is dele delegation. Um, and, the, and those outcomes look kind of zero sum, right? Congress weaker, president stronger, by explicit congressional decision making. So, but there is another scenario, and I think that might cover a broad array of policy errors as well, uh, which is Congress stalemates that is, it can't make a decision, perhaps because the parties disagree on whether a problem is a problem. Sometimes they may agree it is a problem and still can't come to a consensus. Um, and then we see presidents step into the breach and try to exercise authority. Um, and many of those were given examples uh, earlier this morning. That is, presidents trying to act without statutory authority. And I'm not so sure that that's zero sum. I mean, I could imagine a world where that's actually negative sum, right? Congress is worse off because it can't act. Presidents try to act, but presidents aren't then creating durable policy change by use of executive orders or, or what have you. So strikes me there may be a array of policy areas that are surely negative sum. Both institutions are worse off. Weak Congress, weak POTUS. And we can come back to some of those issues, but immigration reform, certainly. Um, uh, the debt relief, certainly. The quote unquote, the Muslim ban. I think we can come to, uh, and I think it's worth thinking a little more about why you end up with sort of weakened presidencies, even though they're stepping into the breach to try to exert power. Interesting. Barbara, your thoughts? Oh, well, uh, good morning. Uh, it's wonderful to be here, and I just love the theme of this revitalizing American institutions. And last night was such an extraordinary night, and I was delighted to be here with my neighbors, uh, Justice <laughs> Kennedy and Mary. They live across the street from me, so talk about you know, what a privilege um, to uh, hear Justice Kennedy last night. And uh, one of the things that I thought was so wonderful that he spoke to that I think the whole theme of this uh, conference about, you know, he joked and said, you know, you're asking an 80-something person to talk about revitalizing, but that that is exactly who should, somebody who has revered these institutions and dedicated his life to them, who has, you know, is just steeped in all of them, as you all who were here last night heard. 
and has, you know, thought about this and approaches it, you know, and you heard that from his conversation last night. And so it was wonderful to hear the governors talk in that way too. Um, and, you know, to hear our, our panel. So it's really a privilege to be here. And so I'm humbled to be <laughs> in the company of uh, my great neighbor. And on day when we heard about the passing of Justice O'Connor, who you know, went on the bench the year I started law school. And for somebody who didn't have, and she spoke at my law school graduation. Um, so somebody who didn't have those kind of role models when I was growing up, um, I, I was privileged to later uh, meet her and tell her how her speech at my graduation um, actually inspired me to have a third child because she spoke about how she had had three boys and stayed home for 10 years. And she looked at me kind of puzzling, like, I don't think that's what I talked about at your law school graduation. But she happened to mention that. And I had two boys at that point, And I thought it would be great to have a third child. And I had my lovely daughter. So at any rate, uh, to get to the questions, but um, it just, we are so, privilege to have people who do revere our institutions. So I think this is such an important effort. But before I was in Congress, I was in, in the State House, and I, so speaking to the governors, and I do think, um, I, I saw, uh, you know, speaking to, you know, whether we have strong parties or strong leadership, I was very privileged to have a very strong speaker in the state of Commonwealth of Virginia has a very a strong speaker model, strong governor model too. and. I really enjoyed working within that model because, you know, while you know the speaker could really make, he even made the decisions of who sat next to, you know, who, but um, we we got so much done. It was very effective. Uh, we were really encouraged to work bipartisanly, even though when I went in, there were 66 out of 100 Republicans. Um, we had a split Senate, so we had to. Um, work together. All of our bills, we are encouraged to, you know, get bipartisan co-sponsors. You know, you had to sit there and listen to your colleagues in, in debate. And it was a very collaborative process. So I, even though it was strong leadership, it was also, you know, emphasized to collaborate and work on your bills and, you know, to make sure they got through. And then when I got to Congress, after having been a staffer during what were pretty tumultuous times in the 90s, um, where while we impeached you know, President Clinton, we also had a balanced budget, we got welfare reform passed, and we got some tax cuts passed. So you know, you think it was very contentious during the 90s. You know, Bill Clinton and Bob Dole and Newt Gingrich actually were pretty grown up and did a lot of things even with all that ugliness going on. But by the time I got to Congress in 2015, um, you, know, you had this Tea Party Freedom Caucus groups that it kind of started taking over Republican leadership. And that was really my experience that really made it difficult. It wasn't the parties or it wasn't leadership. It was this rump group that you've now seen, you know, most recently, you know, oust a speaker and really take over a party in a way, you know, and there are other currents going on and why, why they're doing that. But it's really um, taken over the party in a way that makes it very difficult to uh, you know, take on um, a lot of these issues. And even though that, I mean, it was bad while I was there, but I was privileged to be able to work with this wonderful man, because we were, uh, I was chairman and he was ranking member while I was on the science and uh, uh, technology committees uh, with him. And so we still got legislation 
through because while those guys were having their hissy fits on various things, there were legislators who liked to do things and we could you know, get it to the floor and work together because our committee was a very collaborative committee. So it was kind of a tale of two Congresses. Those guys were starting to take things over and, and not allow people to work together anymore and starting to disrupt our the Republican conference in a very destructive way that you know, has continued to go on. But uh, we still were able to get things during that, t during that time. So I am more in the camp of wanting a strong leadership uh, stro and, and even party structure. But you still, to get anything done, you know, it's a people business. And you have to have relationships. You have to be able to work together. And again, the Freedom Caucus that you know, just hangs together their little tight group, that is not something they've been known for most evidenced by you know, when Jim Jordan you know, ran for speaker and to his surprise, you know, somebody who had never passed a bill in 16 years and didn't have those relationships was you know, surprised that he didn't know how to pass a bill, which at that time was himself being speaker. And so um, that was his first um, effort ever to try and get 218 votes. His efforts prior to that had been to just take things down. So, you know, I, I do think the, you know, I'm, just a little, I'm answering something a little different from the power uh, structure thing, but the whole leadership efforts, I think um, we've just seen within my party a continued uh, effort to just go take the party structure apart. And in contrast, you saw during, you know, I'm, I'm a Republican, while Nancy Pelosi's politics were not my politics, I, I think Republicans would do well to follow her model, which even with a five-vote majority, she got a lot of things through. She kept her conference together. She ruled kind of with an iron fist. She probably didn't do some nice things politically, we know. Uh, but uh, you know that, uh, that was a much more effective model, and she got things done. And if you're going to have the majority, your whole purpose is to you know, get some things across the finish line, not just to be um, you know, having performance. You know, we kind of have the Freedom Caucus is really kind of the caucus of the Kardashians. They like to go on TV. They like to perform. But most of them, large proportion of them, have never passed legislation, which, you know, and they kind of don't want to. So there you go. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Dan, so you were in Congress for, as we mentioned, uh, 16 years. I know academics often have this sweep of sort of we're going to look at 100 years, right, <laughs> changes in balance of power. Um, I don't know if you noticed changes during the time you were in there about congressional capacity. Um, or just how you would view kind of congressional capacity to stand up to the executive during the period, even if you didn't think it changed? Well, uh, thank you, Brandis, uh, and, and great to be here uh, on, this, uh, on this panel, and great to be a, a fellow at, uh, at Hoover. One thing you didn't mention in my introduction, I have a, a master's degree from actually a school of engineering here at Stanford, oh. so I get to walk by, walking to <laughs> Hoover, I walk by my old dorm. Um, but I, I think there's nothing more important today that receives so little attention as we're concerned about the future of our republic. There's nothing that receives less attention than the decay of our institutions in general. 
So I think the center is, you know, has a big job to do, but it is incredibly important. There's so much focus on so many other places where we have concerns, rightfully concerned, about where our republic may, may fail, focusing on certain individuals, certain groups maybe. But I think without institutions, I mean, institutions facilitate our republic. Without strong institutions, then we will not continue to have a republic. And I think there's no more important institution than, than Congress, because Congress is where, in a representative democracy, that's really where the people are supposed to be heard. Uh, I, I've known Sarah for 20-something years as, as, a political, as a political scientist, and as Barbara said, we served together in, in Congress. Um, I certainly saw in my, my 16 years in, in the House a significant change. Uh, it didn't start, I, I entered in 2005. Uh, it didn't start then, but I definitely saw different eras in uh, the, the time I was there. You basically had the second uh, President uh, George W. Bush era where there, there was still cooperation in, in the House. I saw that we got a big energy bill accomplished when, after Democrats took the, took the House in the 2006 election. Uh, Nancy Pelosi actually worked with President Bush on things that the two parties could work on together. 2008 comes, Democrats uh, get large majorities in the House and the Senate, had 60 votes in the Senate uh, for the, it's the only time. It happened for only one year during that two-year period, but it's the only time in the last four decades there's been a filibuster-proof majority in, in, in the Senate. And at that time is where I see things really start breaking down. Republicans decide that the only thing that they, they can do, that they're going to do is work against and try to stop the Democrats. Now, we could have an argument over whether that's, well, that's all they can do at the time, uh, but I think that was really a change, and it's also a change in all the Republicans brought in in the 2010 election, the ones that, that Barbara mentioned, that uh, I think really didn't have an interest in, in, in governing. Mm -hmm. And I think things really went downhill from, from that time. We, we, uh, First Democrats tried to do a lot in, 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 the, in the two years and probably may have pushed, debate that, how, how the things were pushed forward, big things were pushed forward on, on a uh, partisan basis. Republicans come in and the Republican Party is, is two parties right now. It's not one party, so not, not one united party. And I saw all the struggles that uh, Speakers Boehner and, and Ryan went through trying to get anything, anything done. Um, President Trump gets elected, and I saw Democrats, my party, decided that they were sort of going to go all in in what I call, a lot of people talk about politics now as being tribal. I see it as sectarian. Uh, it is really a identity-based, you know, our partisanship has become identity-based, and the idea is you just need to defeat the, defeat the other side. Now I say all this because that, this does not, Congress does not work when, that is, when our politics are, are, are like this. 
And what we not only lose is the you know, ability to, for Congress to act and get things done, but it also is something very important that I think we, we miss is that Congress is also, it's not just about the output, it's also how the process works. And one of the purposes when the Constitution was written of, um, we, we have two houses of, uh, of Congress. I mean, there was a number of reasons for that, but one of them is to have places where, you know, two places where people can, their views could, can be heard through their senators, through their, their representative. It's supposed, Congress is supposed to be a place where all these different views are heard. There's supposed to be debate, deliberation, and compromise, so we reach conciliation. And I think a lot of the problems that we have right now are because Congress is not helping to bring all these voices together and actually have real debate and deliberation and figure out how are we gonna, how are we gonna work together here? I think that's one of the reasons you know, that adds to frustration people uh, have. So I think Congress is failing not just in lack of, of production of, of good laws, I think it's also failing in not helping bring America together. I think the process is also a problem. And this, this needs to be fixed. A, a lot of the problems are, the, are, the, are politics, our partisanship right now, but I think there's also internal issues in, uh, in Congress, especially in, in the House. And one last thing I'll say now is I, I completely disagree with Barbara in terms of the, it, I, I very much did not like a strong speaker. And I don't <laughs> like, I think that that is, that is bad. Um, I think it makes the institution not work. Um, now, it sounds like in, in Virginia it was very different in, in the State House where you actually did things in a bipartisan manner with a strong speaker. Uh, but that doesn't happen in, in the House of Representatives. Uh, a strong speaker makes sure that the, uh, it's the majority party that uh, rules. You even look at uh, re Republicans right now. Despite the fact, you might say, well, look, there's not a strong speaker. Look at all the trouble Republicans are having. Well, like I said, the Republican Party is really two parties right now. But the other thing is, if you look at it, all right, Kevin McCarthy is ousted the first time in history. What, one of, the, um, one of the biggest criticisms of McCarthy was that he was not being a strong enough speaker in getting, there's a, the, the faction that voted against him who are opposing him, he's not getting the things done that we want him to get done. That he's not, so they're actually saying he's not strong enough. He's not strong enough to, you know, force through even though, you know, I don't understand how the small group thinks that they, they don't understand that you need 218 to pass anything, I don't know. But I'd argue that the Republicans- and They don't have the 218 within their own caucus. Yeah, so anyway, I, I think it, it, there's multiple issues. I think one, uh, we, need to make, we need to make Congress work or else, you know, I really fear for the future of our, our republic. Jonathan, I mean, responses to others, but also your own independent thoughts on kind of shifts in the balance of power and whether Congress is working well today. 
Yes, um, like others, I'd like to start out by thanking you and, and, uh, and the, and the uh, Hoover Institution for putting this together. The idea of uh, one of the best things for me as an academic about being here is the ability to sit on a stage with two people who've actually been there working in the trenches trying to pass legislation and learning from them, and I hope to, uh, I can learn a lot from you. What, what I want to do, uh, just for a couple of minutes, is uh, so one of the things Brandis didn't say in introducing me is a lot of my work is broadly comparative. So I look at countries around the world in addition to a lot of work recently I've focused um, in recent years very much on the United States and trying to understand how it works in comparative perspective. And so I just want to be clear the United States is a presidential democracy uh, which has division of power between the president and the legislature and that's pretty fundamental to what the framers were, uh, were, were up to. Um, and that's what we're talking about to the last, uh, the last panel. Uh, I think the issues brought up by Mike McConnell and, and, and Professor Hamburger about uh, the administrative state and the, these kind of increasing acts of unilateralism from the president uh, is an important issue. And it is, of course, very related to how we understand what's, what Congress's role is in oversight. So when I look at presidential systems around the world, this is not unusual. Uh, it, is a, it is difficult for presidents to get their, their, their you know, because of the separation between the executive and the legislature and the lack of tools with which to punish uh, backbenchers or to get them in, in, in line, it's hard for presidents to get their agendas passed. And this is true in all the presidential systems of the world. Uh, many of which are multi-party systems. So the American system of two-party presidentialism is extremely rare. Uh, the other, the other two-party presidential systems right now are Ghana and uh, Nigeria, um, and you might say South Korea. Um, but what I want to add to that is two-party polarized presidentialism. So we had two-party presidentialism back in the era of bipartisanship that we heard a little bit about. And then we heard a description of what's changed, and I think very good descriptions of what has changed in society and what has changed in Congress in the last uh, 20 years. And so we now have a system of two-party polarized presidentialism, which is something that academics like Juan Linz have always warned us was not something that would work out very well. Uh, and so the, one of the things that happens in, in, a, in, a, in a polarized system like this is that the chief executive tries to find other ways of achieving uh, policy outcomes when all of these kinds of, uh, all of these, you know, in, in, a, in an era of divided government, when the parties are behaving in the way that was just described, it becomes very hard for the president to, uh, to, uh, to achieve any kind of, uh, any kind of uh, to make deals with, uh, with this type of institution. But even when, the, even when the party of the president actually has a majority, uh, the kind of the, the, um, the, the problems of, uh, of uh, factionalism and uh, self-interest within the parties makes it very hard for the president to make deals even within the party. Uh, and so all of this creates incentives for presidents to try to act unilaterally. And we see very similar things happen in, in the history of presidentialism in Chile, Venezuela, uh, Brazil, Argentina. Uh, in some ways, this is uh, not surprising that in this era of two-party polarized presidentialism, we would see presidents behaving in this way. Thanks. So um, kind of leading in from this question about this balance of power, I want to talk a little bit about trust and public confidence uh, in Congress, the title of our session. Uh, whereas a majority of the public consistently had at least a fair amount of confidence in Congress at the beginning of this century. The, you know, um, so this is just a fair amount. This isn't a lot. This isn't, a, you know, uh, um, or even some, but a fair amount. Um, right now, only 30% of the public has a fair amount of trust in Congress. So that's a, mm -hmm. it's a quick decline that's occurring during these, you know, 
uh, years uh, beginning uh, with the early part of the century. And this has occurred across different parties controlling Congress. This isn't just a blip of the recent speakership uh, drama um, and different parties controlling the presidency and Congress. Um, so I'm wondering if some of the factors, you know, we've already that have been discussed, uh, delegating to the presidency that was talked about in the earlier session and we've touched upon, um, Barbara and Dan have been bringing up the role of parties, which we can delve into a little more, or other phenomena. Um, what's, what's primarily driving this low trust? Sarah, you, you wrote a piece entitled The Dysfunctional Congress <laughs> so um, a few years ago and have written extensively about the problem-solving capacity of Congress. Do you want to start by saying a bit more about your arguments and what they uh, imply about, may imply about trust in Congress? Uh, sure. Um, so in uh, 1995, I finished my dissertation, uh, and Tom Mann uh, was at Brookings, and he hired me uh, with the charge of doing research on Congress. And of course, it's a think tank, uh, some public-facing work. Uh, implicitly, my job was to come up with ways to improve Congress. Uh, and I have to say, it's been almost 30 years, and it's a damn miracle I still have a job. <laughs> this off the record? <laughs> okay. Uh, so in 96, I began a project about asking questions about um, can Congress work? Uh, it came on the heels of a David Mayhew book uh, trying to show that party control uh, didn't matter, uh, trying to look at when does Congress um, legislate a lot versus when does Congress uh, do less. Uh, but the heart of my project was to ask a different question, which is not so much can Congress legislate, or how much does Congress legislate, but can it solve problems? And that required knowing not just what I call the numerator, what Congress did, uh, but to have a sense of the denominator, what's on the bigger, broader agenda of what people think to be um, major public problems. And so after uh, a lot of uh, sitting in the library reading microfilm, those of you under 30, I can explain <laughs> that, what that is, <laughs> maybe under 40. Um, so what do we do here? I end up with the measure of the legislative agenda, and then I know for every Congress from 1947, um, the data now run through 2020, um, what percent of the big ticket items are like stuck in deadlock? And keeping in mind that one person's deadlock is another person's cause for celebration. And so when I use the word deadlock or dysfunction, um, what I really mean is problem-solving capacity. Right? Whether one wants a, to move policy in a conservative direction, say entitlement reform, or in a liberal direction, say uh, more uh, Affordable Care Act and so forth, um, you need a functioning Congress to do, to do either. So what do we learn from Congress about those data and why do I end up you know, recently writing about dysfunction? Uh, those data suggest, as you might expect, a sort of a steady incremental increase in the frequency of deadlock on the big issues of the day. Um, look at the Great Society period. My measure tells us about 30% deadlock. Look at recent Congresses and the Clinton administration, Trump administrations. Uh, we're talking about 60, upwards of 70% of, say, the 20 big issues ending in stalemate. For much of that time series, um, a second observation, Congress uh, deadlocks more in periods of divided government, as we might expect. 
for much of that period, right, when the parties disagree in terms of their electoral incentive and they disagree in terms of policy, more ends up sticking in the denominator, so greater, greater deadlock. Um, bicameralism matters. I think we care a lot about uh, differences between the branches and competition uh, and disagreements between the branches, but it's uh, disagreements between chambers that often leads to deadlock as well. Uh, and more generally, not surprisingly, the level of what we can call partisan polarization matters quite a bit over the long post-war period. Um, deadlock more frequent as polarization rises, and whether we think of polarization as ideological in some sense, right, disagreements over the role of government, or if we think of it as just sheer partisanship, right, team play, my team's for it, uh, so your team's against it. Um, as that intensity of partisan team play rises, no surprise perhaps, but Congress gets mired, mired in deadlock. So much so that any differences we used to see between periods of unified party control and divided government, we really don't see that anymore, right? Because the incentives when you're in the minority uh, to block at any point that you can, um, those dominate regardless of whether it's divided or unified party control. So the aggressiveness of the opposition party, whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans, um, that is the overwhelming uh, reason why we end up with these periods of stalemate. Um, so, and legislative scholars, I should say, disagree about the degrees of stalemate and disagreement. And Congress does legislate in periods of polarization, and we can come back when we talk about reforms, about like what are the conditions under which you can get the parties to the to the table and to come out with an agreement. Um, but long-term policy problems certainly uh, persist unattached, unaddressed. Um, a little bit of action on climate change, but not all that much. Uh, the national debt, entitlement reform, right? Problems for which the rewards are really in the future, such that acting now often imposes costs um, with all Due respect, <laughs> many members don't want to impose costs for the benefit in the future when they may or may not still be uh, in office. So um, that's my sort of sense of where we're going, but I'm, I think we should definitely come back to like, what does it take to get people in the room to, uh, to try to solve problems? Yep. Barbara, building on your earlier comments about parties, and particularly since I know you and Dan mm -hmm. have uh, fairly different views on this, I'd be interested if you think that that relates to the low trust, or are there other factors that you think are the more critical ones? Well, I, I think the, the people that are seen on the media constantly are the, you know, the Kardashians, as I mentioned, the performance folks. But it is really a tale of two Congresses, because they do, you know, to be positive in the front, you know, usually when things are getting done, even in these most, you know, contentious times, it's on these sort of crisis issues. Um, and even, you know, sometimes the press even covers some of these substantive things. Um, you know, because it's a crisis. Right now, one of the most effective committees uh, working right now is the China Committee. That It was a special committee. That is, it's the one area that Congress came together this year and appointed, um, what is it, uh, Mike, uh, Mike Fitzpatrick, is it? Uh, Gallagher. Gallagher, Mike Gallagher, I'm always good. And, um, you know, they, they're working together great. And there's a big story, I think, uh, on them that just came out this week. And they talk about how 
what a well-working relationship this, you know, again, relationships really matter. And because, both because it's a crisis and because you have two very mature members who are working together on this, they really have been able to have good hearings, have, you know, some, you know, good ideas on how they can move forward on how we're going to deal with China and Taiwan. And, you know, they've really been, you know, on, how, on the military, you know, situation and, and what we're dealing with here. And so that's been a great example of bipartisanship, you know, probably the last one remaining this year. But they've done a great job there. Also, to give credit to the Senate and the Senate leadership, you know, Mitch McConnell, with, you know, all of the health challenges he's faced, you know, I think he is someone who so reveres our institutions, so why I am not somebody who is for uh, term limits. You know, he is somebody who is, you know, bringing together uh, the Republicans to support, you know, this Ukraine, um, Israel, you know, border deal and is working however he can to make sure we can get that because he understands the threat that's going on right now and how important that is. And, uh, you know, I think Chuck Schumer is trying to work with him on this. And, you know, and even the new speaker has indicated that, you know, he's open to this now and it seems like there's something going on there. So, but I really do give great credit to Mitch's leadership and the way he governs is very, has been very different with the House leadership, House Republican leadership has gone on. Um, I think in a much more serious manner, you know, even though he does get attacked a lot by you know, the aforementioned uh, people who are on TV all the time, he really respects members across his caucus. You know, if someone's going to be attacking Lisa Murkowski for not voting for this or that, you will never find Mitch McConnell critical of her. Same thing on the whole other end. You know, he's not critical, you know, because he understands to keep that you know, conference together, it's going to take you know, people from Texas to Maine to Alaska are gonna have a lot of different interests. And he is very respectful of his you know, conference uh, you know, all the way across. And you know, I think that's the way you, you know, build that confidence. And again, it's the relationships. Um, and then some other areas where they've been working together um, you know, that they, I think they should get credit for. Uh, the, um, you know, well, it was last Congress, but again, it was Senate Democrats and Republicans and uh, Liz Cheney uh, and, and the January 6th committee working together on the Electoral Count Act. This was something we knew, you know, that we knew how to get done probably before the Congress changed hands and you had some really good, you know, in the um, lame duck, they, they came together and got that done. So there is some good things done there that you don't hear about as much, but the reason the low confidence level is there is because what you're hearing about, what you're seeing, you know, certainly turn on the TV this morning, you saw the George Santos, you know, expulsion vote and whether or not that was going to happen or not. You've seen the whole speaker drama going on. You're seeing months and months of will we or not, will we not support Israel in this crisis time? Certainly people would have wanted that already to have been done. Why is it dragging out? So those kind of concerns are, are certainly lower the threshold. And then just getting to the issues of, why aren't, you know, that, that we talked about in the previous panel, those are the kind of issues that are never going to get press attention. You're not going to get the cameras to come in and on a hearing on what can we do on the administrative state, right? Our hearings didn't, when we were doing science budgets and, you know, even things on AI and quantum computing and things that are really important, you think those didn't get a lot of coverage on the press, but how are we investing them? What kind of government resources are we putting on? But there's a lot of 
opportunity for members to work together. And one of the things, certainly in reforms, that I think Congress should, can and should be working together on, and you saw our governors talking about it last night, is pushing things down to the states. And that was something, even when I was in Congress, having been a member of a state legislature, I thought more and more of this money, any way we could put together legislation that would push more of the money and the control down to the state level, that was going to both save money in the long run, but put the control where it should be. And I think there is bipartisan support for that kind of thing. But because you don't have those relationships these days and all the fighting on everything else, you never get to that point in our hearings or even in our legislation, even though if you welfare reform was an area where that was done in the 90s. But there are a lot of models on education would certainly be an area where we could do more of that. Um, but we just never get to that because of you know, the other issues that make Congress dysfunctional. A crisis is always what then, when there's a crisis, then everyone comes together, sadly. That's what it takes. Yeah. Thank you. Dan, so you um, issued some different views about <laughs> the benefits of a centralizing power and the leadership, and there's been a shift over time that you might want to, at your discretion, allude to or d discuss about sort of removing as much power from the committees um, in terms of lawmaking. Uh, I don't know if you think this relates to the crisis in trust in Congress. There are other factors like polarization. I mean, what do you think the main causes are? Well, I hope we have a chance to come back to that, the first part later, because I okay. want to throw a few things out here. Uh, so as an academic, and as an academic, I was always afraid to say anything unless I had studied it for <laughs> a long time. I had all the data. I had the argument there. You know how hard it is to go from being an academic to being in politics, where politicians just throw out made up facts all the time. Um, so it, it, I, st I still halt now in, in sort of when, when I want to make a claim about, about something going on. But let me throw a few things out there about why trust may be going down. Uh, one is that we are now promised everything. Uh, we are promised easy solutions by our politicians. And I don't see, you know, it's, it's so hard running when you're, you're an incumbent and saying, oh, I did this, I did that. And someone else is telling me, well, I'm going to solve, I'm going to solve the health care problem. I'm going to solve this. I'm going to solve, it, it's an easy solution. Um, and the voters seem to reward people. And, and they think, I think the more they hear from politicians, the solutions are easy. They think the solutions are easy. And then when the, the problems are still around, I think that's why people have less trust in government, less trust in, in Congress. Like, wait a minute, the solution, I keep being told the solution's easy and they're not doing it. So there must be some, there's something wrong or corrupt there. That's why it's not getting solved. I, I think that's one, uh, one problem out there. As I said earlier, I, I think people feel like, a lot of people who feel like, all right, there's only two you know, we're given this idea there's only two ways of thinking about the world and about there's a red way and a blue way. And so if I don't feel like I fit perfectly one of those, then I sort of feel like, well, I'm not really, I'm not really being heard. I, I, I don't feel this way or that way. And that's all I hear about. And, and again, it gets back to people actually feeling like they, their voices are being 
being heard and a diversity. I think we have a lack of diversity of voices being heard in Congress. Diversity because, there, again, there's not just two ways of viewing the world and having a set list, which everyone in here could name, a set list on each side. Of, you're supposed to agree with all these things. Um, so I think those are a couple of problems in why there is a, a, a lack of trust out there uh, because people feel like I'm not, I'm not being heard and the solutions are easy, but they're not being done. And we rely on people. Uh, Mike Gallagher, I think Mike Gallagher cares. It, that, one, one more thing. I asked my father. He served in Congress for 22 years before me. I say, what's changed? What do you think has changed? You know, human nature doesn't change. Why, why is Congress so bad? Why is politics so bad? And his answer is that we don't have enough politicians in politics anymore. I mean, I don't think politicians, they don't do politics anymore. Politics is debate, deliberation, compromise. Uh, and it's just, we rely on hoping that we, we elect people who happen to have this concern that we're going to get things, that, that they need to get things done and work together to get things done. And I'm not a huge fan of Mitch McConnell, but I have to say, Mitch McConnell actually, when Democrats had unified government, he actually could have thrown more wrenches in the Senate than he did. He could have. And it was the house, if it was the house, he, they would have. But he actually didn't throw as many wrenches in, and I think he's it. Barbara's saying, I think he's an institutionalist who believes the institution needs to work. Thanks. So, Jonathan, uh, two strands of your research, arguably, maybe more, so you can you know, <laughs> enlighten us on that, uh, relate to this question. So you've done a lot of work over time on polarization, right, which is a very hot topic. And then you have this recent project of working papers that look at factionalization in Congress. Do you think that these are factors that relate to trust in Congress, or what are the, what are the various factors you think are, are driving the low trust? Yeah, great. So I think, um, I think that if I haven't made this graph, but I think if I made a time series graph of trust in Congress and the numbers that you described, mm -hmm. and we also just look at some of our favorite measures of polarization, that they would be moving together. And now, unfortunately, there are lots of other things we could put on that graph yeah. that are also moving together. But I think there is something there. And, um, uh, and so how does this argument about polarization and trust work? Um, well, one of the puzzles about American polarization, I think that's really difficult to understand, is that it, it makes sense to think, it sure looks like tribalism and it looks like sectarianism. Uh, we have these two increasingly homogeneous and increasingly divergent tribes that look at everything uh, differently. Well, I, I think I agree on the divergence part, but the, uh, the internal homogeneity part, I strongly disagree with. Uh, I think one of the puzzles of the American polarization is that the parties are becoming increasingly difficult to manage internally. They're trying to compete with each other with how internally dysfunctional they can be. So the parties are not at all homogeneous. And so to look at what's happening in the Republican Party and conclude that the parties are internally homogeneous is, is impossible. So the parties are increasingly internally difficult to manage at the very same moment that they are increasingly uh, pulling apart from one another. And so if we look at how voters see this, um, uh, voters are, uh, in the United States, if you look in surveys, uh, voters are extremely heterogeneous in their views of what the parties are all about. And so if you look in comparative surveys, Germans have a pretty good sense of where the SPD is and the CDU is. Americans are all over the place in where they believe the parties are. 
uh, and they're becoming more, uh, they're become, they agree less over time. So the, 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 the disagreement in what voters think the parties are about has actually increased over time, not decreased. So the parties are becoming more internally heterogeneous and more difficult to manage. And I think that might be part of the reason why uh, Congress has changed in some of the ways that it has. Um, uh, so instead of having these homogeneous tribes, we have these really internally heterogeneous groups. And so what do the parties then try to do to manage the fact that, that on many issues, their voters actually disagree with many of the most uh, vocal people in their party? How do you manage this? Well, the, man the way you manage it is to put all of your effort, all of your advertising dollars, and all of your, um, uh, all of your messaging into into looking at the extremists in the out party and trying to put a microphone in front of them and trying to stress to people how extreme the out party is while saying very little about your own, uh, your own platform uh, and, and, and not really doing much to try to convince people that your party has the, 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 the right platform for the voters. So you put all your effort into demonizing the out party and saying very little about the in party and that leads to uh, increasing disdain for the out party uh, and also, I think, crucially, no increase in affection for the in-party. In fact, a little bit of a decrease in affection for the in-party. So you look at that, put those trends together over time, and I think that that leads to just a, a, general, a generalized increase in distrust as people then look at the institution and see how dysfunctional it is. Can, can I ask? I, I, this work you're doing, I, I think, is, is fascinating. I want to talk to you more about it. One question I want to throw out there very quickly is, in Congress, was heterogeneity in the parties dealt with in allowing bipartisan legislation, bipartisan work, uh, when there are issues that the parties were, didn't have one view, were heterogeneity on, but there was some agreement across, with some factions across the parties well, then you had bipartisan, and, and sort of that was allowed. And today, that's not allowed. Yeah. Today, you can't get together. I've tried that. You can't get together and put together something that, that's bipartisan on something that, that's major, something people are going to see. But it used to happen all the time on, on, on major issues. I mean, do you see that as Congress doesn't allow that anymore? Yeah, I think that's part of where the mistrust and the, and the frustration comes from. I think there's a lot of demand for that. It's, it certainly seems to me in public opinion data that so that's what people want from Congress. Uh, but everything that you described has, uh, has, made that, has made that more difficult. Yeah, and that has decreased, you're, you're right, because I remember during you know, Boehner's speakerships you know, uh, with Paul Ryan, that was, it, you could do that more, like whether it was opioids, people could work together, some Brian Bills. With, with Democrats on that, and we were able to do that. But then by the time we got to like 17, 18, I remember I had a bill on hate crimes with Debbie Dingell, and I was having, having a really tough time on my side getting it done, and then I find, you know, and I just, uh, I was, you know, bargaining with different chairmen. I, I had to go do a, but, you know, I sort of a lobbyist and trying to get my bill, so I had to go to a, a hearing, a field hearing, for a chairman in order to be able to get him to put my bill on the floor. So I did the field hearing. I had to drive someplace and do some field hearing. So I got my side to do it. And then, because I was a targeted member, Democrats didn't want to let it go on the floor. So God bless Debbie Dingell, because she really wanted this bill too. <laughs> she went said to her side, now don't you dare <laughs> pull my bill because you don't, you know, because you guys are all trying to go get Barbara. 
And, but this was a cut, and then when we passed the bill, and then somebody had written a story about, gee, you know, bipartisan friendships in Congress and how things get done, because we had also done sexual harassment legislation together, that got through, uh, because that became such, became such a big story during Me Too things that a lot of the women came together and did it, and a lot of, obviously a lot of the guys supported us too. But when the story came out, Debbie started getting phone calls and attacks saying, how can you be friends with Barbara Comstock? She's a, she's a targeted member of, of the, on the other side, and you're a Democrat, and she's a Republican. And the whole point was, we're trying to work together. I mean, the legislation we had worked together was sexual harassment legislation, hate crimes legislation. Legislate, you know, there were plenty of things we still disagreed with. Um, you know, but we were friends, it, we worked together on these things, and I know you had the same kind of experiences, but this was the public as well as our own parties we had to fight to get legislation that obviously was nearly unanimously supported by both, both of our conferences as well as the public. But those were the kind of strange dynamics you face today. So then when you try and get to the kind of things we talked about in the previous panel on executive overreach, you know, that's, those are the headwinds we're facing. Okay, so we want to leave some time for questions, and we're running short on time. So if uh, each of you in one minute <laughs> or less could say a reform that you would, if you could choose, you could, and if you could, you could do more than one reform, but I'm going to really ask you to do one minute so we can hear from the audience. Sarah? I'm kind of a skeptical on really effective reforms can't be adopted. It's just the okay. politics make it hard. But the ones that, and even the low-hanging fruit are hard to adopt. That's, that's probably 10 seconds. It's still worth investing in legislative capacity, whether that's uh, Congressional Research Service, JAO, uh, CBO, recreate the Office of Technology Assessment, and I think actually pretty importantly, beef up inspectors general, which can be an arm of Congress, uh, an agenda-setting arm for Congress, putting them into those uh, agencies and departments because they have to report back to Congress. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for being thank my 15 uh, seconds. Yes, no, thank you for being <laughs> succinct. Barbara? I think the governor's uh, brought it up last night, and Kristen Nuna pointed out on redistricting, he had vetoed his own state legislators, you know, uh, uh, redistricting plans. I think if we had more purple districts, it would, it would work out better. Now, um, in Virginia, I was in the state house when we were able to you know, do our own lines and everyone collaborated, yet um, in Virginia, we lost 21 seats uh, during the Trump administration, you know, even on lines we drew. Then you know, afterwards, we were able to gain back a few, and now we're about 50-50, you know, even though we lost some. But, with lines that were drawn by the court because our guys couldn't agree on doing it, so they got. But they're they're fair lines basically. They kind of represent. So I think redistricting, um, you know, whether it's by uh, commissions or uh, things like that, you'd end up having fairer lines. You're still get, the problem. There still is people are sorting where they live, so that's what's making us redder and bluer. So you can't stop that, but I do think, and the courts are already stepping in too, so we're seeing that in some of the states where you're having fair redistricting because courts are stepping in when there's some really egregious, which I also think is good, but I think that would, 
uh, as Governor Sununu pointed out last night, I think that does help and that would make everyone be a little bit more competitive. Excellent. So capacity, redistricting, Dan? Very quickly, 2018, Speaker Ryan says he's not running for, for re-election. We knew there was going to be a new speaker after 2018 election. House Problem Solvers Caucus, bipartisan caucus, came up with rule changes that we wanted to see to empower individual members in committees in, in lawmaking. And we said, who, the group of us said, we are going to demand, before our speaker vote, we're going to demand these rule changes. We weren't as successful as we would like to, and there's great stories behind that, which I can't tell now. But right now, I'm working with Brandis to put together a task force of uh, uh, academics, former members, for, former staffers, to recommend rule changes, again, to empower individual members and, and committees, what house rules can be changed, and put that together and, and put that out there before the next election and hopefully get some some traction and let members know, and new members especially, that there's power that they can take back for themselves, and they should be should be doing that. So we have have this task force that we're putting together on that. Thanks, thanks for bringing that up, <laughs> Jonathan. All right, thanks, Brandis. Uh, 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 so if you believe that that Congress is broken and that polarized two-party presidentialism is not sustainable, then you need to deal with one of those issues, either polarization, the two-party system, which I, I suppose you could uh, deal with through proportional representation or some other reform that would lead to a multi-party system, or the problem maybe is with presidentialism itself, and um, perhaps Woodrow Wilson had it right after he served as president. He wrote about how dysfunctional he thought presidential democracy was, and he advocated a parliamentary system. I assume these are not the kinds of reforms we're, <laughs> we're, we're talking about here. I already wasted 30 seconds. So the 30 seconds, more realistically, something we didn't get to talk about, I haven't heard anyone talk about yet, which I'm surprised. I thought one of the two of you would bring this up. But uh, just the amount of time that members of Congress have to spend raising money and the, um, and the way in which the committee system now and you know, the way there's a pay-to-play system involving formal dues for getting plum committee assignments uh, and committee chairs and that this really distorts everything. And we, I, I, it's something I thought we might have more time to talk about, but that seems to me to be a, a rather fundamental problem. And it seems like something that one could imagine reforms and even reforms that would be in the interest of some party leaders perhaps uh, to unilaterally disarm on this, uh, on this system of, of, of allocating committee assignments via uh, fundraising. That is something that seems reformable to me. Excellent, thanks. I think we have time for one or two questions. Okay, right in the front. Thank you. A terrific conversation. Um, a number of people across the ideological spectrum have suggested increasing the size of the House of Representatives, even significantly perhaps. Do you think that would help in revitalizing trust or impair or neutral? I'd do anything to try to shake things up. If, it, if it's too big, though, you're just going to make it easier for leaders to, to have control, but you know, maybe add... 100, 150, just something to shake things up and bring, bring some new blood in. Uh, I don't think it's a definite solution, but I'm willing to try almost anything. Anyone else? Well, it might depend on how it was done. If it was done through just creating a lot more individual single-member districts that were smaller uh, so that we had constituencies that were more the size of British or Canadian constituencies, that would be one thing. The other thing would be for each state to, to, to be more like the German system, where each state would have more seats and they would be allocated proportionally. 
which might create a multi-party system and that would change everything. Um, so the, the, the devil would be in the details of how that would be achieved, I think. Yeah, I wouldn't want to do that, but yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah it may, I, I, I had one of the districts that by, yeah, by the end of the 10 years was much larger than others. So you do, you know, so could it be a little, I mean, it still was manageable. So uh, I don't know that necessarily that would change the problems we face today. Um, I mean, I wouldn't mind shaking it up a little bit. Uh, some of the problems you know, are elsewhere. You, one more question. Okay. You're right in front of me, so a little bit of a yes. Thank you. Um, we're talking about institutional reforms, but obviously people make up the institutions. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, I think one of you mentioned that um, it's difficult to attract quality candidates who would run for these offices because of all the, um, the downsides that go along with becoming a public official. Um, so how do we build that quality pipeline of candidates? Well, I, I continue to serve on boards to elect, in particular to elect um, Republican women and find great candidates. And you're going to hear from one of them this afternoon, Senator Ernst. So I think, you, you know, to find and support candidates and to, to work with groups that are doing that. We are active in primaries to try and find and support those candidates. So when you have open seats, we try and, you know, go in early and, and find and support people who are going to be people who support institutions, people who have the kind of background um, you know, that really, you know, will be suitable to, you know, who will be workhorses, not show horses. So that's the kind of effort that I think you need. And I think people to get, to really focus on individual candidates more than parties. I mean, the groups that I'm part of, we're really trying, and I focus on the state houses too, because I think oftentimes you're finding people who've already served in other offices. And one of the things that we found in some of our groups, people who've served in the military, like Joni had, uh, served in Senator Ernst, or <laughs> served as in, in state legislatures, served you know, in other capacities. They tend to be people who've already had leadership roles. So when they come in, you know, they take it, you know, the governing part of it, as Dan was talking about, these people who don't want to govern. You want people who really take this as public service governing role. And so we try and identify those early and give them financial support. Any other responses? The primaries are a big problem. Yeah. We'll just leave it at that. Thanks so much to the panelists and to you.